Holy, righteous God, I just thank You that we can come together as a body, study Your truths and the words that You have given the writers of the Scripture. Lord, I pray that You give me Your tongue so that I may share Your truth. Help us all to be prepared to hear from You. Lord, there are many times I do not feel adequate for the calling that You have given me. And in those times, I know that You are glorified because I need to rely on You. Lord, I pray that we can take Your message to the church and call us and see that it is just as relevant to us today. Lord, help me not to stumble in my speech, but to proclaim clearly. I pray these things in your Son Jesus' name. Amen. Is anybody else nervous? For those of you who don't know me, I am Kurt Gelman. I'm the pastor of student ministries here. Um, so I basically deal with sixth graders to about college age. Um, so it's kind of fun when I get the opportunity to come and, and talk to the whole body. And um, this week, uh, I was looking forward to this. And um, as many of you know, I hurt my back. Uh, a couple weeks ago, and um, my sermon took forever to write because I couldn't sit in a comfortable enough position to write. So uh, it was funny because I, I thought I was ahead of the game with my research, and then Friday came and I still only had an introduction. And uh, so Saturday, my wife took the kids and they decided to go to the park, but realized it's freezing cold and they weren't dressed appropriately. Called me up, asked me to measure the closets, and I was like, "Where? You're at the park?" And she ended up going to IKEA, dropping them off in the little play place, and just wandering IKEA to have some alone time. So I went from not having anything and all of a sudden Saturday just stuff was flowing out of me like crazy. And uh, then I realized, whoa, I got a lot. So uh, I've been trying to kind of figure out how to cut it down. I'm sorry if we go long. Uh, there is so much in this book and even in the few verses that we're going to be focusing our attention on today. There's so much that could be brought out of there that we just do not have the time to touch on. So let's do a quick review, kind of catch you up on what's going on. Paul is the writer of this letter and he was a guest of the Rome judicial system uh, when he wrote this letter. I love this book because I think it relates to us so much, in particular, especially Salt Lake City, because 
the, the city of Collis was a second tier city. And I don't mean to offend if you're strong Salt Lake people, but I grew up outside of New York City. Your city's like a block. So it's, it, it's a second tier city. The, the congregation is made up predominantly of Gentiles. There's a few of us in this body who can say, ha ha, that's not me. Um, and Paul has never been to the church there. Now we have Paul's here, but we don't have the apostle Paul has never visited us here. That church was planted by a name, by a man named Epaphras, which if you're looking for a name to name kids, Lee and I are done having kids, you can take that one. It's a fun name. Um, he probably came to know the Lord while Paul was in, in Ephesus uh, doing his ministry there, came to know the Lord, kind of went back to maybe his hometown of, of Collis and and shared the gospel and the church grew there. But even in the early stages of this church plant in this city, heresy was creeping in. So he, he goes to see Paul in Rome to let him know what's going on with the church. So Paul, who is under house arrest, pens this letter to kind of say, Hi, how's it going? You might be veering off the track a little bit. So he writes this letter and he opens it up with encouraging words of saying he has heard how faithful they have been to Christ and how much they love the saints. He then goes on to share how he's pleased that the gospel message is increasing there, that it's growing. He prays for them that, they, that they'll live a life that is worthy of the Lord. And then he goes on and starts to list how the Lord Jesus Christ is incomparable to anything else. Some of the things he says about Christ is, He's the image of the invisible God. He's the creator of all things. He's the head over everything. He is the one who has reconciled us in order that we may become holy and blameless. He is the mystery that has been hidden and has now been revealed. And then in Colossians 6 through 15, Paul basically lays out the gospel message. If you ever want a really short, compacted version of the gospel, just read those few verses. He reiterates over and over again how it is through Christ that our sins are forgiven. How it was even when we were sinful, He pulled us out and gave us life. That He has canceled out our debts and nailed them to the cross. He laid down the foundation. Kind of like a good teacher will. He'll, he'll point out all the things you need to know and all the things that you're doing good. And then says, by the way, here's something that's wrong. I don't want you to feel totally bad about yourself, but there's some things that, that, that are creeping into the church here that are starting to make me worry. So our, our focus passage today is going to be Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. And I have three observations of, that I brought out of the text here. 
So we're going to read through this passage and then uh, take a look at this. This is just three. Like I said, there is so much in here. And if you haven't read the verses that I just quickly reviewed, I challenge you to, to read that when you go home. But Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regards to food or drink or in respect to festivals or a new moon or the Sabbath day, things which are mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, in the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you are living in the world, do you submit to the decrees? Such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commands and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure. The appearance of wisdom is self-made in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are no value against fleshly indulgences. So in this, in this section, Paul is addressing what is known as the Colossian heresy. It has that title because it's kind of a mojpage of false teachings and philosophies. It's, it's got some of the early bits and pieces of, of, of early Gnosticism, which is a belief that there is um, a higher learning and truth that is only revealed to certain people. It's got some of the, the carryover of the Jewish practices and bits and pieces of, of mysticism. So basically, there, there, there's a body of people here who are picking and choosing their own faith, which doesn't sound very different from a lot of people that I come in contact and have conversations with. Paul mentions this a little bit in, in verse 8 in chapter 2. He, he warns them to be careful of philosophies and empty deceptions which are according to the world rather than Christ. And then he goes on and says, in case you forgot, this is the true philosophy. This is the true message of the gospel and continues with the gospel message there. So here in verse 16, he, he begins his address, his but there's a problem. And I sit and I wonder at times as Christians, why would we want to follow false philosophies? Why would we want to follow these things? And if you're a Christian, there's one thing you know. You're sinful. We want to impress other people. Even the shyest, quietest person still wants to impress the people that they're around. We want to look good to our friends, to our family, to the person sitting next to us in church. We want to do things with a hope that people will look 
in honor at us. So the first observation that I have has to do with this wanting to look good. My first observation is aesthetic piety is to no avail. One thing I forgot to mention, as we go through these points, I want you to think where Christ isn't fully being realized. So aesthetic piety is to no avail. What do I mean by aesthetic piety? I mean doing something with the sole purpose of being seen by man. You know, like when, when we pray, I'm going to use the biggest words I can think of so that when you guys are sitting there, you'll say, wow, Kurt is an awesome prayer. You know, or if I'm having a conversation with my son or daughter, I'm going to speak very boldly the commands of God so that as you walk by, you will say, Kurt really knows the heart of God and is disciplining his kids in a rightful way. Wow. I don't do those things because I know I'm going to probably say something wrong and because of that I'll do it in hiding. But aesthetic piety also has to do with adding things with the hope of obtaining a higher level of enlightenment or a higher level of righteousness. A couple examples of this is there, there are some monks who take a vow of silence within hopes that if they have no outward communication, they'll obtain a higher level of communication with Christ. Or in certain religions, certain people take vows of celibacy, especially religious leaders. Or maybe it's a formula that will help you to obtain certain visions or enlightenment. Maybe if you pray or do certain things, God will give you prosperity. Or maybe you pray to a saint or some other created thing as a mediator. So what's happening in the city of Collis is there's a group of people who are basically being the spiritual judge of the body. Now the term judge there might better be defined as an umpire. One who makes sure the rules are being followed and then decides who the prize goes to. Now, it kind of makes me laugh a little bit because as Christians, you'd think something would click off in their head being like, wait a minute, isn't that Jesus' role? Isn't He the only one who can really judge man's hearts? Isn't He the one who gives the reward? But just like we today, the people in this church get caught up with things. Next thing you know, you forget some of the truths that you're following. These spiritual elite were telling the church what to eat, what to drink, what holidays to do, what, even how to partake in the holiday festivals. And, and some of them were basing these things off of visions that they were having. And even though it contradicted the truth, they were still bringing it in. Now, 
these rules, these regulations that they were following made them look holier than thou. Looking holy and righteous to the outside world has no kingdom benefit unless it's an outflowing of a life that has been transformed by Christ. I'm not saying don't do good things. I'm not saying you shouldn't, you know, follow the commands that Christ has called us to, but you shouldn't be doing it because you want people to say, wow, so and so, Johnny, Jane, Jimmy Joe, they are amazing people. You want them to say, wow, they serve a God that transforms. They serve a God that forgives. Often, I, I, as people, we want things to be complicated. I know you're thinking, no, we don't. But how many times do we take a simple thing and make it a million times more bigger than it needs to be, more complicated? We do it with our faith all the time. Um, you know, it, our faith is pretty simple when you think about it. Believe in a crucified Christ. Surrender your life. Become a new person. It's really simple, right? But, but we tend to be like, well, I need to be perfect first, then Christ will accept me. Or, you know, I, I know I prayed for forgiveness, but I've got to do something else to really earn forgiveness. It can't be that easy. Or, or the grace that God has given us only goes to a certain point, and I've got to be good enough and work my way the rest of that distance. We all have those thoughts at different times. We, we just make it more complicated than it needs to be. Paul, in verse 17, he's calling these practices or these rules and regulations that the spiritual elite are enforcing on the church mere shadows of what is to come, or some translations say what was to come, now, we're going through Deuteronomy when Steve's standing up here. The law was given for the sole purpose of pointing people to Christ. So these are shadows of things to come. If Christ has come and has fulfilled all these things, why are we still acting and behaving and following these laws like He hasn't done any of the things that He claims to have done? It's cheapening Christ. It's cheapening His life. It's cheapening His salvation. It's cheapening His grace. Christ is the perfect reality. Aesthetic piety is human effort to obtain what God has already granted in Christ. Let me say that again. Aesthetic piety is human effort to attain what God has already granted in Christ. We tend to fall into these things when we think God has missed something or hasn't fully been realized for who He truly is. We don't really think He's God, so we need to work our way there. These shadows no longer constitute the norm for judgment. If Christ is truly Christ, 
If Christ truly has died for all the transgressions we have done, why are we continuing to try to earn this forgiveness? It's funny because uh, I read about different pastors and, and, you know, Pastor Steve's got me on this whole Puritan thing right now. And, and, and I read about the, these, these pastors from like the 15th, 16th century. And, and, and then I, I just conversations with Steve and other pastors that I know. This is a struggle for pastors. Because as a pastor, we're supposed to look holy and righteous. We're not supposed to make mistakes. And that's really hard. Because I make a lot of mistakes. Probably will make one or two while I'm up here. And there are times I don't want to do what I know I'm supposed to do. And the only reason I do it is because I want Charlie to say, Wow, Kurt, Kurt's a good prayer. Kurt's always in the Word. And Charlie knows better than that. I just used him because he's smiling at me. Um, but there are times for me where I'm doing things not really out of a desire to become closer to the Lord, not really out of a desire to grow in my faith, but because I want people to look and say, Kurt, you're an amazing pastor. And I'm doing this exact aesthetic piety. If Christ is fully realized for who He is, You'll move past this. I'll say to people, I'm just having a really lousy day and I just really need the Lord to humble me. Because right now I only want to do it because it will make me look good. That's Christ being realized in your life. True religion is marked not by rigorous compliance to rules and self-denial, but faith in Christ. And life in the Spirit. John Wesley used to say that religion should be practical. And again, we tend to want to make it more complicated. What defines a true Christian? Being in Christ. Where God's grace is the thing that's transforming. Not your works. A person will never move away from aesthetic piety until they see Christ as He really is. Which brings me to the second observation. Christ is the personal and complete revelation of God. Two key words there. Personal He's not far away. You can know Him. You can interact with Him. He interacts with you. Complete. Those are one of those words that as people we never want to say because am I ever completely sure? Is it completely done? I think so until Leah comes in and tells me I missed the spot. But Christ is complete. He is the complete revelation of God. This, this point is pretty much backed up by everything that Paul says prior to this passage today. 
He says in Colossians 1.19, and then kind of reiterates the point again in Colossians 2.9, that Christ is the fullness of the deity. Christ is divine. Now, he's not divine in the way a chocolate delicious cheesecake is. He is not divine in his actions the way some righteous Mother Teresa sort might be. He is the divine. He's also trustworthy. He's trustworthy because like Paul has shared a couple times already, he's the one who's in authority. We can trust him because he led by example. Has Christ called you to do anything he has not done himself? We can trust him because he's fulfilled many of the promises that he's already called, claimed to do. And because He's already done that, we can trust that He'll be faithful in the other things. The, coming back to the complete revelation, I, really it makes me laugh because if you don't think Christ is the complete revelation, please tell me what else God is supposed to reveal or show. Because a little rundown here that I've put down. It's through Christ that all things are created. It's through Christ that we receive redemption. It is through Christ that sins are forgiven. It is through Christ that new life is given. It is through Christ that Satan has been defeated. It is through Christ perfection can be obtained. It is through Christ that we can come before the throne of God. Did I leave anything else out in your life that doesn't fit into those things? What else does God need to reveal? Paul leads into today's passage with three verses, 13, 14, 15, um, which I think is something that we tend to forget. He says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of flesh, He made you alive together. With him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of the decrees against us. He's talking again about what's the issue here. They're saying you need to do this to obtain that. There are decrees against you. He's saying these things because Christ has overcome them. He has taken them out of the way, having nailed them to the cross. When he had disarmed the, rule, the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. If this stuff is true, why are we living like it's not? Not only is this stuff true, but God wants you to know it. He wants you to understand it. He wants you to taste and see it. Hebrews 4, uh, verses 15 and 16. 
It's a passage most people know. He says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. That's the personal God. God's not looking down at you saying like, I can't believe you're being tempted by this. He understands. Yet the people in Collis and people today and maybe some people even sitting here are following this same religious heresy in hopes of fulfilling something God might have forgotten. Is, that, is, is it even possible that God might have forgotten something? Yeah, I can just picture, you know, the Trinities hanging out in heaven and, and, and God's like, oh, by the way, Jesus, you got to go back. Kind of forgot to have you do something for me. It's just, this is God that we're talking about. Let's not diminish Him. He is not human. He is not forgetful like we are. The biggest lie that followers of Christ are tempted with is this idea that what Christ has done is insufficient. Do you get that? You might laugh and be, or be thinking like, come on, who, who, who thinks that? But look at your life. Do you truly believe that what Christ has done was sufficient? Or are you still trying to work? Is this the Christ that you follow? This insufficient Christ? Because if so, my question to you is why? Why waste your time following a God that can't do it? My prayer and hope is that you have realized Christ to be the personal and complete revelation of God. Because if so, there, there's, there's freedom there. there. There's true liberty in Christ. When you realize this, the stress of work-based religion kind of melts away. The idea of trying to please man kind of fades away into the darkness. Seeking glory and honor from you people diminishes. There is freedom in living a life that glorifies God. When you look at your life, can you see that Christ has been realized? Do you see Him for who He is? Or are you looking at a distorted Christ? Now the people who are taking this role as judges and umpires believed they were Christians. They had to. If they said, we're not Christians, we're this, the church is going over here going to say, well, that's great. You do your thing over there. We're going to you know, stick with the truth over here. But they thought they were Christians. That's how they were making inroads in there, except there was one major flaw. They were severed from the head. The head being Christ. Which is my final observation. Being severed from the head, head being Christ, leads to a dead life. 
Another way to put this is a, a religion or a philosophy that is Christless is hopeless. If you remove Christ from Christianity, you just took all the hope out. Or maybe you're not taking Christ fully out of the picture. You're just diminishing Him. He's not fully God. Or He didn't fully do all the things that He has done. Or maybe you're just making Him like another kind of celestial being, like an angel or something like that. Like, if you do that you're still in the same spot of having no hope and no life. Because if Christ isn't personal, full, complete revelation, if He's not fully God, there's no way He can do all the things that He's called us, that He has promised us. I mean, for a body... And by body, I mean a church, Christians, to function properly. Christ and the church must remain intimately related to one another. So, I hurt my back and I was laying on the couch and I looked in the corner of my eye with this book called The Civil War Treasury, which I got when I was 12 years old and probably haven't read since I was 12 years old. I said, hey, I can't move, so might as well read. So grab this book out, and it's, it's, a, it's a fun book because it's not just like tell you about the battles and, and things like that. There's interesting. They have songs and random facts and stuff. But there's this story in there of a Confederate general who is battling. It's twilight, you know, cannon, smoke, chaos, war. It's confusing. And he's riding his horse up and down his column of Confederate troops. And he notices over there that there is a group of Confederate soldiers shooting at his Confederate soldiers. So he says, I'm a general. I'm going to ride over there and tell them what to do. So he rides over there. And upon coming on this column, he realizes they're not Confederate soldiers at all. They're Union soldiers. There's something you need to know about this Union column that he is arriving on. Their direct commander was killed earlier in the week. Their new commander, they didn't really know. They didn't know his voice that well yet. They didn't necessarily know what he looked like. So in the chaos of war, here comes a Confederate general on a horse realizing, I'm now behind enemy lines. But in the chaos, he just starts saying, cease fire, cease fire. And in the chaos, they're like, he's on a horse. He must be important. So they stop shooting. He rides back over to his side and he says, go get him, boys. And they surround them and capture this column. Because they were disconnected from their leadership. If it was their usual commander and he was yelling, they'd be like, wait a minute. That doesn't sound like him. I don't know. Maybe he didn't have the regular southern twang or something like that and he could, you know, yell cease fire in a northern accent. Um, but that, that, that is a perfect example of what Paul is talking about in verse 19 of, of this Colossian passage where he's saying that these, these leaders, 
are connect are, are are disconnected. They're not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments grows. And not only that, but grows. Which is from Christ, from God. So they sound Christian, they look Christian, but they're not connected to Christ. They're just in. That's Christian without Christ in. When, when you become disconnected from the head, you'll listen to outside sources. Many times those outside forces and, and influences really aren't that far outside because they're coming from ourselves. Man's favorite thing to replace Christ with is who? Himself. That's so why the verse prior, in verse 18, Paul writes, Let no one keep defrauding you from your prize by delighting in self-abasement, the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, influenced without cause by his fleshly, or some translations say unspiritual mind, Romans 8, 7. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. They're depending on their own mind and trying to be Christian and trying to be part of God's body and their biggest influence is something that isn't even able to follow God? When you remove yourself from the head, it leads to bad theology. And bad theology leads to bad practice. That's what happens. We, we all have those times where, where something sounds really good, so we start to kind of want to take it. And then that influences how we act in other parts of our life. The reason why the body is of great importance to the believer is because that's where nourishment happens. That's where growth happens. That's where accountability happens. That's where strength and reinforcement happens. That's where rest is found in the body of Christ. It's for this reason that I pray and have a little bit of fear from my friends and some of the students that I work with and have worked with who it tends to be around college age and slightly thereafter where they say, you know what, I've had enough of church, I'm going to do this myself. And they leave the body. My prayer for them is that they are really careful about what they let in. What philosophies they take. I pray that they quickly return to a strongly connected body. When what suits you supersedes the headship and authority of God, you must ask yourself, who is really my God? There's no huge void between the believer and Christ. If it's the head and we're the body, 
Can you have much void? Now, I'm not a med student or a doctor. I don't claim to have much expertise in this field. But I'm pretty sure if you disconnect your head, there's going to be problems. Not sure how bad. I'm going to say pretty bad. Got some head shakes from people who are in the medical profession. There's an intimate connection there. I got to find that out when I hurt my back. My back hurts here. I had radiating pain down my leg. Next thing I know, this side starts hurting because it begins to compensate. There's connection here. God's not far away. He's connected with us, the body. There is a liberty to be found when Christ is realized. When Christ is put in His proper and rightful position, the spot that He even earned through His life and death and resurrection, there tends to be one of those weird biblical paradoxes. When Christ is my authority and I submit to Him, I'm free? That doesn't seem to make sense. Especially to Americans, right? Down with all tyrants. No taxation without representation. But if Christ truly is where your hope is stored up, and if you submit to His will, this amazing God thing happens where I am liberated to truly love my enemy, let alone my own family. Where somehow I find this freedom which gives me this amazing strength because I realize I'm not the one who has the strength. I'm free to allow my brothers and sisters or Christ to be my strength. Or, or, or maybe I'm, I'm free from the world and the struggles and the, the pain that I have because guess what? I can lay that down at His feet and say, that's for you to deal with God. And now I'm free to have peace. I'm free to have a real life. A life that is fully and truly alive. Aesthetic piety is to no avail. Paul ends this passage, the end of chapter 2, by saying that. Saying that these actions, these shadows, this, this religious piety, this, this way of trying to look holier than thou, really has no value when it comes to fleshly indulgences. And by fleshly indulgences, I don't just mean sexual desire. I really, really, really want a motorcycle. That's my fleshly desire. I really, really want my kids to be obedient the second I say it. And maybe know it before I even say it. Now some of that's right. You know, maybe not the motorcycle part, but 
wanting kids to be obedient, that's right. But when it becomes more of, I want my kids to be obedient because I'm their dad. And what I say is more important than anything else that it will ever be said for their lives. Well, there's, there's an issue now. That's my own desires there. That's not, that's not Christ. Man's ways, man's practices, the problem with even the, the Old Testament law, right? How many times do people have to sacrifice for forgiveness? Every time they sinned again. Man's ways are flawed. If you're lucky, now I'm saying if you're lucky, man's ways might help you hide sin. But they'll never help you overcome sin. They'll never help you to dominate sin because it is not you who has dominated it. It is Christ who has done it for you. We must firmly grasp that Christ is the personal and complete revelation of God. When He was gasping His final words, it is finished on the cross, He was speaking truth. It was done. He completed everything. And the church, you, me, us as a body, must remember that Christ needs to be our head or we're destined to live a dead life. Is Christ your great hope? Have you allowed the Gospel message to fully transform you? Because when you have, Christ will be realized. And when Christ is fully realized in your life, there is liberty, there is freedom, Or you can pick the other. Let's pray. Lord, I just am often ashamed how I can know you so well and yet turn my back on you. I can sit and read your truth. I can teach it. But oftentimes, I care more about man's glory and honor than, than yours.